guys, this is episode nine and we have just three more episodes in the first season. Uh, I've decided to do the podcast in seasons, 12 episodes in the first one, because obviously there were 12 disciples. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, my friend told me that was a good idea and I like good ideas. So uh, as we finish up the first season, I'm getting excited about the summer season. I'm going to take a few weeks off to just enjoy my kiddos and just breathe. And then we're going to do what I'm calling the summer seven, a seven week series that will just be light and fun and just really sort of feel like summer. So I'm super pumped about that. And I just really love sharing these stories with you. I've lived them and I've worn them and I've held them. I've prayed through them and I've died, dived headfirst into therapy because of them. And in a small way, it just feels like I'm presenting them to you to make discoveries the way that I have. And my hope is that is as you hear my discoveries, you're making some of your own. As a storyteller, I'm best at telling the stories I've lived. And as I'm preparing and praying, I, I am in awe of how often the Lord has spoken to me and how it seems as though there's just never been a time where he wasn't invested in me as his daughter. And I didn't always believe that. And, and quite frankly, I often thought the opposite. But perspective and old journals are a brilliant gift. Um, thankfully, I think, for, for at least your sake <laughs> and the enjoyment of this podcast, I've been blessed with a wildly colorful life where my humanity has been on full display, be it embarrassing or funny, deeply sad and sometimes traumatic. Jesus just reveals himself and he speaks and he speaks through pictures and experiences and music and smells and sounds and people. And honestly, he just uses everything to speak to me. And my hope is that these testimonies of his goodness, they would be an offering. And in that offering, there would grow an appetite for more of him. And you are welcome to feast on the lessons and glory that I've been given. And and you can borrow my faith and excitement for the Lord. But my deepest desire is that your stories of his goodness and his favor in your life would become the thing that captivates you. And then because you are just so undone by how much God loves you, you would offer your stories to the world. God is, he's speaking to his children. And as I continue to share my humanity and vulnerability, my victories and my failures, I hope you will hear how persistent God is at speaking his love, his presence and his hope to us. Truly, I, I just can't stop talking about how much he loves us. And, you know, I don't want to share every detail of my stories because sometimes the dirt and the grit of the stories that I've lived, they invite an appetite for darkness instead of light. So if some places in the story seem vague, um, I hope that you trust me in knowing that the things I'm sharing are the things that matter. And I hope you hear in this through my voice. Like, I really hope you hear this. But I am loving doing this. And like, the more I lean into this way of communicating, the more I'm falling in love with God. And I'm reliving the way he's loved me. 
And it's increasing my own faith. And it makes me want more. I'm hungry for more and more of the Lord. Since I've started the podcast, I've been asked one question above everything else. And it's this. When did you really, truly know God loved you? And so I'm going to tell you the answer in a story, of course. In February of 1999, I walked 12 miles from the Planned Parenthood in Crenshaw, California, to the corner of Artesia and Prospect Avenue in Manhattan Beach, where my old youth pastor's office was. It was an almost two-hour walk, which also meant it was about a pack and a half kind of afternoon. I just turned 19 years old a few months before, and my long legs were strong, but they're skinny. And I had a bleached out pixie haircut, and I was well into my look. It was a sort of cheaper version of the grunge punk rocker Courtney Love. I was wearing two slips I had bought at a thrift store that were probably owned by someone's grandma. And I completed the look with some striped tube socks and some old black Chuck Taylors. My collarbones were exposed. And when I took deep breaths, my ribs looked like they were trying to escape my skin. My neck was long and thin and my face looked chiseled. So by LA standards, I was almost the right kind of thin. But the rest of the world, they would have thought I was really ill. And I was ill. I was sick. I had relapsed from a brief period of sobriety, and the way I was living made it difficult to remember to eat. I was preoccupied with one thing, to avoid pain. And in this season of avoiding, I also discovered I was pregnant. I discovered that my boyfriend was someone else's husband and was not interested in being a father. And I found out the majority of these things as he dropped me off at the clinic and drove off to work. And as I walked up the stairs to the Planned Parenthood office, I was trying to recall the Ten Commandments just to see how many I had broken in the last week. And I stopped counting. It was too depressing. The office was both sterile and soft. The lady at the counter, she must have seen a lot of girls who looked like me because she was not affected by my sunken gray eyes that were also red and swollen from crying. So she told me to wait. So I waited. I started pulling on an old elastic string from the hem of my old lady slip and I wrapped it tighter and tighter around my finger until it changed colors. The tip of my pointer finger was saved when the lady called my name and a girl who was younger than me explained to me my options. She spent one minute on being a single parent and the state and government programs that could assist me. And the last nine minutes of the appointment were spent describing in great detail the abortion procedure and what would occur in my womb, what would happen to my body, what kind of lasting effects I may have, and that I would need to come back with someone to drive me home. Oh, and $400. She made sure to emphasize that without payment, I would not receive treatment. The next available appointment was like eight days from then. And within 15 minutes, I'd added another check mark to that 10 commandments I was guilty of. I walked down the steps and I, I turned right without thinking. I headed to the one place I knew would let me just be. Craig Cooper was my youth pastor in high school. He was a thinner and lankier version of Magnum PI, but with glasses and a perfect amount of silliness and serious. As I walked, I smoked, (laughs) I cried. And every now 
and then I would rub my hand across my belly and try my best just to deny the fact that I already loved this baby. I didn't even love myself, but I loved the baby. It sounds insane to think that I was leaving an abortion clinic and walking to church. But now I think it's maybe one of the most beautiful walks I would ever take. I was weary and sweaty when I got to Cooper's office and the pills I'd consumed the day before were starting to wear off and the sobriety was smacking me across the face. He invited me in and although the secretary was very cordial, sort of imagined her writing me down on his list of, list of appointments as Rahab 215 and then maybe pleading the blood of Jesus over herself just not to catch any of the sin that was seeping from my pores. I sat down and Cooper, with his brilliant smile, said, What's up, Trace? I told him everything. I was pregnant. My boyfriend was married. I just made an appointment at the clinic to have an abortion and that I really wished you could smoke in church because I could really use a cigarette right now. He smiled and he said, Wow, that's a lot of hard stuff. And I am so sorry you are walking in this. But I am so happy you are here. And then he said, have I ever told you I was adopted? Before I even continue, I want to make a ridiculously big deal about the kindness that was offered to me. The lack of judgment, the absence of shame, and the insane amount of empathy that was being communicated. I can say with certainty that this man, this youth pastor, who I'm sure was paid way too little and worked four times as hard as any CEO, he changed the course of my life and my child's life. The kindness was a blanket on my clammy and sweaty drug oozing skin. And his smile was like a soothing balm to my tired and raw eyes. I showed up as Rahab and he treated me like Mother Mary. Kindness assaults suffering. It makes it so that suffering has to surrender. When tenderness and acceptance is offered, shame curls up in a ball and it can't help but be held until you're made human again. And this is what this man did for me. He breathed in my despair and he exhaled hope without any remnant of judgment. We talked and after he told me his adoption story, I asked him one question. Do you hate your birth mother? And with tears streaming down his face, he said, how can I hate someone who gave me the opportunity to have this? And he pointed to a picture of his wife and his children. I left and walked down the hill to the beach. It was getting towards evening and my outfit choice was not really suited for February at the beach. So I curled up under a lifeguard station and smoked the last of my cigarettes. I watched the waves and I prayed. I shouted like a mad woman, which in LA is totally normal. I just wore myself out. My life truly sucked because the truth in that moment was that no one was looking for me. No one was wondering where I was. I had used up whatever good graces I had been offered and in the loneliness and aloneness, all I had was him. I had Jesus to yell at and to hold me. I fell asleep that night under a pile of sand I had pushed on myself and woke up the next morning to see the sunrise. You know, 
even though I grew up with all kinds of religious rules and sort of almost threats, I never thought about having an abortion and I never thought that having an abortion would send me to hell. But something happened during the night when I woke up. I had this thought that not seeing the ocean, not diving under the waves, not learning how to drive and sing at the top of your lungs when you're driving with your friends and laughing until your stomach hurts, falling in love for the first time or even the 10th time, not having a best friend, that, that would be hell. And I didn't know if I could take that from my kid. There was a mercy for me in this that fear didn't dictate my decision. Hope did. I never made it back to the clinic and I stopped pulling my hand away when it found its way to my belly. I didn't think falling in love with your child while it grows inside you. I didn't ever think about that or, or I didn't know it could be described like how you could love a baby like that. But for me, it was like with every new cell that developed in my baby's body, my cells were changing and it, and it became very difficult to hate myself so much when the hate was competing with love for another inside my own body. And I loved this baby and I tried not to, oh my gosh, I tried not to, but it was impossible for me. I decided to place my baby for adoption. Uh, things didn't really work out between me and my boyfriend. That is the nice way of saying that he dumped me. Yes, he dumped me. I was that broken that even knowing he was still married, I still wanted to be with him. So my living arrangements changed. I spent more time under the lifeguard station and the Hermosa Beach Pier until my Aunt Karen let me live with her. She knew about my decision for adoption and she knew some people who were wanting to adopt. I'd visited a few Christian adoption agencies and looked through the catalog of potential parents and I considered honestly being a single mom after that. <laughs> it was pretty bleak and I am sure those parents, those potential parents were brilliant and wonderful, but somehow all I saw when I looked at them in those books was them judging me and it was not a fair assessment. But there was just no chemistry. So I agreed to meet the people my aunt knew. And we met at a Marie Callender's restaurant off National Boulevard, just south of Santa Monica. Her and I walked in and waited at a big booth. And in walked two of the most beautiful human beings I'd ever seen. Let's just call them John and Marie. They were led to the table by the hostess and followed by their lawyer. I don't know how to explain falling in love with two people like this, but I did. I knew within 15 minutes that these were my son's parents. Oh yeah, I was having a boy. I just found that out a few days earlier. And in some strange way, by the end of our lunch, I wanted to say, congratulations, you're having a boy. This is an interesting relationship, birth mother and adoptive parents. It's complex because one side is holding tension with fear that maybe the birth mother will change her mind. And that's the other, that soon they would have a son. And the other side, me, I was holding tension with an insane amount of relief knowing that my sweet boy would be cared for in ways that I could never imagine and wild overwhelming jealousy that they would experience experience all of him and I would have only my imagination to hold on to but they were the ones they knew it and I knew it and I started loving them the same way I was loving my son 
My living situation was still funky. And after not talking to my mother for a year, we talked and she told me I could come live in her basement in Boulder, Colorado. The nice part about being sort of homeless is that it's easy to move. But before I did, I had to hit up one last AA meeting at the Alano Club in Hermosa Beach and have my son's father sign away his rights to the baby. Earlier that day, uh, John and Marie had taken me shopping at The Gap and got me some new clothes for my body that was coming back to life as it was growing one. So I showed up in my new Union Jack overalls and white t-shirt, same black Chuck Taylors, with a handful of fear and the other with the legal document. There is a strange loneliness and betrayal that I felt as he signed the paper. He was bitter that I never made it back to the clinic. And I think disdain is probably the best way to describe how he looked at me and maybe even disgust. But I put on a brave face until it felt like I was almost begging him to sign the paper. It was like I was trying to get paroled and he was the warden and I was just holding my breath until he signed. And that was it. He signed his name on one line, on one piece of paper, and it was done. I flew out the next day to Colorado. I was 19, pregnant, and now sober. I was becoming whole, but about to be broken in ways that I didn't know were possible. But sometimes geography can relieve you of who you are, at least for a while. My relationship with my mother was weird, but tolerable, and in her own way, she supported me. Although I was not allowed to tell my younger brother I was pregnant, and he would later tell me that he thought I had had, had gone to like a fat camp <laughs> um, instead of think, knowing I was pregnant. My mom did one thing that really changed my life in profound ways. She found a place called the Caring Pregnancy Center for teenage girls who were pregnant. And at my first meeting, which was way different than an AA meeting, I met a real life angel on earth. Her name was Elaine. And Elaine loved me, like really loved me. And in our small group, I was the only one at that time giving her baby up for, the, for adoption and all the other girls were keeping their babies. Elaine did what my mother couldn't do. She pulled me in close and she loved me in spite of all of the brokenness that clung to me. She invited me to this church that met in a school and it was filled with a group of total ragamuffins led by a Messianic Jewish preacher. The first day I attended this church, there wasn't even a sermon, but a time where the congregates just started sharing what God had been doing in their lives. It was honest and it was kind and it became home. That church grew and moved out of the school to a building that it's still in today. And it's where I met my husband and it's where my kids go to Sunday school and it's where I was loved back to life. Months passed and my baby grew. I would pray every night with tears streaming down my face to make me stop falling in love with my son, who I started calling Henry because it meant leader of kings. And that was my prayer for him. I would rub my belly and I would sing Jackson Brown songs to him. And then I would read him the Bible. What brilliance that I thought I was just reading it over him, but really I was reading it over myself. And occasionally I would sneak cigarettes and ask God to make sure Henry would not have asthma. I mean, you guys, I was doing the very best I could. Okay. It's lonely. It's lonely to look in the mirror and know that you are not enough to be the kind of mother you want to be to your child. And it's lonely to think that your unborn baby is your best friend. And that in whatever way you could know how to love, this human has become the greatest love of your life. And it's lonely to do that alone. 
in those moments, it's hard to feel Jesus because all you can feel is your own ache. And his, his presence was felt when Elaine would hug me or when my friend Anne would greet me at church. And I would kind of feel his presence in this young people's group I joined at church. But there's still a pretty big chasm when, you know, they're in grad school and you're in Lamaze class. I dreaded his delivery day and I also could not wait for it to come. I was in therapy weekly and I could not get my therapist to tell me how to stop falling in love with him because it was only making this impending day feel like I feel like I was willing to walk into a tsunami with no hope of finding my way to the top. I would start crying and, and I wouldn't stop for days and I would just drive for hours, I would drive along the foothills of Boulder and I would scream and cry. And it was like having a violent deliverance. But once those demons had been delivered, I turned around and picked them back up like wayward hitchhikers just to keep me company. Sorrow. Sorrow and Jesus, they were my companions. And I held hands pretty tight with them both. Jesus never left me. And I started talking to him audibly because I was so lonely. And I didn't really have any friends. And this was before cell phones. So in my car, I would just talk to him. And I looked like a seriously like unstable person because I was in the car just screaming alone. But it became so normal that my mother would hear me talking for hours in the basement. And she considered me having me evaluated at a psych hospital. Jesus never left my side. Ever. And when it was time to fly back to California about six weeks before my due date to have my son, he was a constant Lamaze coach and minute by minute, he helped me breathe. At this point, this was the longest I'd been sober in seven years. And back in LA, I felt like an alien. I, I wasn't sure how to be here and not be high. I went to the beach and I surfed at eight months pregnant and I felt the sea on my skin and I realized how dull all of my senses had been because it was like a whole new sensation to dance in the waves. I spent years trying to kill myself slowly with drugs and alcohol and thinking that they would dull the ache enough just to get by. And for five months without those things to fight off the sadness, I realized that loving my boy had been the antidote to self-hate. To love someone else more than myself, it was fighting off the darkness. And I had just never been clear enough to see that. Being in the water with my son, I wondered how long I had been asleep. How long I'd been drifting at sea and now finally docked at the harbor feeling anchored by love I had for my son. I was afraid of what would happen when the anchor was attached to a different boat. But I'd be lost at sea again. And who would come looking for me now? The conversations I had with my son while he grew inside my womb were so overwhelmingly powerful. And there were moments where I thought maybe he was the only one who really ever knew me. And he will never remember them. He would never know how wildly I needed him. How he saved me. And how I was regretting every day that I was going to give him away and yet knowing I was not safe enough to care for him. I knew that I loved him enough to make sure he had more, more than me. And it was right. What I was going to do was right. It was the best for him. And I would coach myself and tell myself this when all I wanted to do was run away and hide with him. At midnight, 
On August 22nd, I, walk into Cedar, I walked into Cedar sinai Hospital on Beverly Boulevard. My son's new parents greeted me. In their trepidation and excitement, it was palatable. And I was tired and ready and scared and, I don't know, every other feeling you could have. In a beautiful room that was far out of reach with the government-assisted insurance, insurance I was on, I was aware that my son would enter the world already on a different plane than I could have ever given him. In the best hospital with the top OBGYN being paid for in cash by my son's future parents, I was both grateful and felt incredibly small. My labor intensified and the pain of delivery was matched by the fear of what it would feel like to see the object of my affection in the world. I was fully in my body and somehow outside of it. And I pushed and pushed and I looked down and saw the brilliant doctor and I saw John and Marie, they were waiting. They too had been falling in love with Henry. Even if, if it was just the idea of him, they were about to hold their answered prayers. There were people holding my legs back to help with labor. And I watched from above, I watched Jesus get behind me and pull my legs back to help assist in labor. He was in my ear telling me to breathe. And as he did this, there was this golden egg-like shape forming around him and I. And as Henry started to crown, the egg got smaller. And as I screamed and pushed and felt my absolute deepest understanding of love exit my body with every expectation of him being placed on my chest to admire his presence, he was instead held away from my body. And I watched John cut the umbilical cord. And I saw the nurse place my perfect nine pound, eight ounce baby boy in the arms of his new mother. And the egg closed. The doctor worked in between my legs and the nurses pressed on my belly to get my uterus to keep contracting. And I watched Marie kiss the love of my life on the forehead. And I wailed. I pressed my back and neck into Jesus, who was still behind me. And I could have broken open graves with the sound of my wailing. And yet no one heard it. Jesus kept it inside the egg. And we watched together what was happening. And I whispered, Jesus, I love him a million times more than when he was inside me. I love him and I want him. He is the reason for breathing. And I turned my head into his cheek and I said over and over and over again, Jesus, I love him. I love him. And Jesus kept whispering back, I know, I know, I know. And then when I was utterly exhausted by love, I took a big deep breath and I felt Jesus wrap his arms around me almost like I was becoming a part of his chest. And as I exhaled, it was like all the scales on my eyes fell. And I looked at Jesus and I said, Oh shit, you love me more than this, don't you? And with a word that echoed through the molecules of my being, he said, Yes. There was a violent shaking inside of me. And although physically it would appear like I was just laying there inside of me, 
all of my cells that had been existing in darkness. They were exposed to the greatest light and it assaulted the very nature of my existence. I had become a Christian when I was five, but in that moment at 19, I was being born again. This was my great awakening because it was in this moment when I comprehended in whatever way I could the vast measure of how God loved me. Me, the adulteress, lying, dishonoring, drug addict, who made every other thing her God before him. Me. He loved me. At that time in my life, I wasn't even sure my parents loved me, but I knew two things that I loved my son and that Jesus loved me. That night, the nurses moved me to a different floor because I think the wailing was bothering the other mothers who were trying to deliver their babies. I didn't sleep, but I trolled through the moments of being elated by the love I knew now and the sorrow that was creeping up inside of me. I could have never understood that even after your baby is born, the love just keeps getting bigger and it doesn't stop. It multiplies and the love of God is the same way, only better. I held my son for the first and only time the next morning. I was alone with him and all I could do was tell him that I loved him and that I was so sorry and how I hoped he would forgive me and that I wanted him. But this was better. And he just looked at me with his perfect little newborn face and I knew he would never remember me. I've been pregnant six times, but I've only left the hospital three times with a baby. I left when Matt and I had a miscarriage and I left when our daughter Bertie died. But leaving the hospital without Henry was and is the hardest thing I have ever done in my life. 22 years later, I can still see myself in those Union Jack overalls following the halls to the exits. Cedar Sinai was the place that I died and came back to life. My Aunt Pam picked me up on the curb like it was just a normal day. Inside I was grieving, but I was grieving the life of, a, of one that was totally alive, even though I just felt dead inside. And I had experienced this radical encounter of God, but I was still walking out the consequences of a life on this earth. And even in the hallways, feeling dead, Jesus was there holding my hand. And I knew if I had decided to keep my son, he would have been with me. And I knew if I had, a ha if I had decided to have an abortion, he would have been with me. And I know that may be uncomfortable to accept, but what I know of God is that there is no place he will not go to find me and be with me because I'm his. And I could have never understood that had I not loved my son. I was deeply depressed for a solid two years and I battled with jealousy and grief more than I thought was possible. And I had panic attacks and was in a constant counseling loop but thankfully, the dark places were tempered with the constant echo of the yes. The knowing that Jesus loved me more than the love I had for my son. And on a random day, a year after he was born, I was up at Chautauqua Park in Boulder. 
and I was sitting under a tree looking at the gorgeous Flatiron Mountains with disappointment that they weren't the Pacific Ocean. And God the Father leaned up against my back and he said, you know, I know how you feel. And I sort of scoffed and I said, oh, really? You do? And he said, yeah, I gave my son up too. And in the same way, his love changed me. His understanding of my pain released me. And this is why I cannot stop telling you how much God loves you, how much he cares. Because when I was running out of commandments to break, he wanted me anyway. And when I thought no one was looking for me, he came and he found me. And when I thought the darkness inside of me was too much to overcome, his love spoke to the ashes of my being and he called them beautiful. So now let me ask you this question. When did you really truly know that God loved you? I can see the movement on the water And I can feel the tide is pulling stronger And I'm ready to go, ready to go Cause I read the stories, heard a sighting Spirit was moving, and it was mighty, yes, I'm ready to go, well, I'm letting go, cause I just want to catch the wind, well, I just want to catch the wind, so I'm setting my sails, setting my sails. I just want to catch the wind I just want to catch the wind So I'm setting my sails Cause I can see the movement on the water And I can feel the tide is pulling stronger And I'm ready to go, I'm ready to go Cause I read the stories, heard a sighting Spirit was moving, oh, it was so mighty. So I'm ready to go, and I'm letting go. Cause I just want to catch the wind, I just want to catch the wind. So I'm setting my sails, 
setting my sails. I just want to catch the wind. I just want to catch the wind. So I'm setting my sails, setting my sails. Spirit, come blow through this place in your power and grace, oh Lord. As we sing your praise and as we seek your face, oh Lord. Spirit, come blow through this place in your power and grace, oh Lord. As we sing your praise and as we seek your face, oh Lord. Cause I just want to catch the wind. I just want to catch the wind. So I'm setting my sails, setting my sails. I just want to catch the wind. I just want to catch the wind. So I'm setting my sails.